Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Joseph Borg, former director of the Alabama Securities Commission. And today I'm joined by guest co-host Ben Edwards, associate professor of law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. We'll be discussing Director Borg's multi-decade career as a state securities regulator, as well as his insights on and perhaps his predictions for securities regulation and investor protection in the years to come. This is the first in a two-part episode, so please be sure to check back for the second interview with Joe Borg. Ben? Glad to have you here at the host desk with me. And Joe, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be on with you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. We're really looking forward to this conversation. And Joe has been a friend and a force in this space for years. And so I'm excited to have this discussion. Joe, I share Ben's excitement and want to congratulate you on 30 years of service to the Alabama Securities Commission. You retired yesterday at the time of this recording. So we really appreciate one of your first official acts as a retiree being to join us on this podcast. And maybe while some of these thoughts are fresh in the sort of the glow of the retirement process, and I understand that some of your friends and colleagues celebrated your service yesterday, I wondered if we can start from the beginning, as stories often do, with maybe some background about your life, your family background. You've lived in Alabama for a number of years. Are you from Alabama? What was the early story that brings us to this 30-year career you've had in state securities enforcement? Andrew, let me tell you, a little history is great. My parents actually are Maltese by descent. Malta is a small country in the Mediterranean. Actually, it's the only country in that sector that didn't fall in World War II. It was the most bombed place in Europe by the Nazis in World War II, just off the coast of Italy and sandwiched between there and North Africa. So you can imagine this tiny little island is the only thing that did not fall and never fell in World War II. So my parents came on over just before I was born, that I think intentionally to make sure I had a U.S. citizenship, highly prized and still is, of course. And I grew up in Astoria, New York. And quite honestly, my parents moved to a little apartment over a bar under the subway station. So <laughs> it was an interesting early life background. My dad eventually became a bookkeeper and then an accountant, did well, and we moved out to Long Island. So that's where I start with my family. I have one sister. She's a retired teacher in Connecticut. So I actually went to grade school, high school, college, and law school in New York. And so I actually started practicing law. And then about 1977 or so, 1978, discovered Alabama. And quite honestly, that's an interesting story. And I was doing a lot of product liability defense work for a firm. So I was practicing law in New York. And part of my job was defense work on some products liability cases that involved a privately held company, rather large company. But again, you got to remember the time frame. No cell phones, more laptops, no fax transmission. As we always did with our clients, we would get on a plane and go to wherever they are and meet with them and go through documents and all sorts of things. So I discovered Alabama. 
been coming down for a few weeks. And then one weekend, they introduced me to a place called Lake Morton, which is about 35 miles north of Montgomery. Lake Morton, interestingly enough, is 758 miles of shoreline, home for the Bassmasters tournament back then. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful place. The following weekend, they took me to a place called Gulf Shores, Alabama. You know what? I didn't even know. Never even occurred to me that Alabama was actually on the Gulf Coast. And on the way back, I said, I'm curious, what does it cost to buy real estate down here? And when I realized I could buy both places with about five years worth of rent on my New York apartment, I decided a lifestyle change was in order. So that's really how I got here. All right. So I want to come back to your Alabama origin story in just a moment, or maybe Ben will pick that up. But to talk about your entry into law, you're a lawyer. You practiced law outside of the public sector before joining the Alabama Securities Commission. Could you talk about your motivations for going to law school and your experience in going to law school? There might be some people listening to this interview who are in law school themselves or thinking of going to law school, what was your experience back then? And was securities regulation really on your radar while you were a student? Interestingly enough, law was not on my radar screen. During high school, I went to a science and tech high school. College, my studies was mostly astronomy, geochemistry, astrophysics. I actually had an NSF grant to work for the Goddard Space Flight Institute for Space Studies in New York City. But if you think about the time frame, late 60s, we just landed on the moon. It seems that the demand for scientists of theoretical caliber had gone down. Law school just seemed like a good alternative at the last minute, but probably the best move I'd made. The one thing I considered about law school when I was trying to figure out I really do need a job and being a scientist wasn't going to work very well at that point in time, was that the law career would give me an opportunity in business and science and everything that was going on at that time in the 70s, which was really the beginning of technology, if you think about it as we know it today. So law school seemed like a good general alternative. I think the science background I had with the critical thinking was great coming through law school. So I find the law school experience is a great precursor to, do you want to be in business? Do you want to be in technology? Do you want to be in any field where the idea of learning how to think and learning how to think in more than one mode actually helps? So my advice there is law school is not because you want to do one thing, unless that's you've already made up your mind. You want to be a prosecutor. You want to be a defense lawyer. You want to be something else. But law school gave me an ability to move into other areas with that training. And as it turns out, I started as a prosecutor. While in law school, I worked as an intern with the district attorney's office on Nassau County. Great experience with then DA Dennis Dillon. I moved from there also while I was in law school to the attorney general's office. The legendary AG Louis Lefkowitz was in charge then, and he actually allowed me to do quite a bit of work in the consumer fraud division, and he actually opened up a consumer fraud division on Long Island. Hofstra University Law is in Long Island, so that was a great opportunity. So that's how I got there. Coming out of law school, I was approached by a former graduate of Hofstra Law School who was then working for a rather large but privately held series of corporations called Hagen Industries. That 
was interesting because they were a lot of manufacturing companies. They owned the third largest truck axle manufacturer. They had brake line plants. They built everything from armored personnel carriers to garbage trucks. And the science background was obviously helpful. So I actually went to work for them for a little while. And during that period of time, I also worked for a small law firm out of New York that was connected with them. That's how I discovered Alabama on one of my travels to Alabama in pursuit of defending products liability lawsuits that the company had. Interestingly enough, while I was down here, I went in-house with them on a permanent basis when I decided that, you know what? Alabama is a great place to live. I love the idea of living on a lake. By the way, I live on that lake today, yeah. some 40 years later, and I still have a place at the beach that's only a three-hour drive. With the economy here and low taxes and the cost of living, it made sense to make the move. So that's how I got down here. That's fantastic. So at this time, you're in Alabama, you're living on the water, a big difference from what life would have been like if you'd stayed in New York City. How did you wind up at the Alabama Securities Commission? Now, here's what happened. During my work with the company down here, I was able to work with them on some financing with their local bank. Their local bank in 19, late 70s, formed the first bank holding company in Alabama called First Alabama. Today, it's known as Regions Financial Corp. I think it's 12 or 13th largest bank in the country. Because I had done some work with them with one of their larger clients, and that was the client I was doing the product liability work for. When they formed the holding company, I get a call out of the blue and say, could you come down and meet with us at the bank? Sure, glad to. And the question posed was, we just formed this bank holding company. We need in-house counsel. Could you start us a legal department? And over a month or two of talking, we came to an agreement, and I actually started the legal office, legal department, in-house counsel for what is now Regions Financial. That was about 78, 79. And I stayed with them till about 84. I went into private practice in 1984, had a lot of the bike business and a lot of the other bank business, but found a little niche as a plaintiff lawyer. Commercial fraud, yes, some car accidents, was able to associate with some bigger firms on some other cases. During that course of that private practice as a partner in a law firm, I ended up trying a case against an outfit out of Florida on a stock manipulation for some clients, which gave me an appreciation for what was going on in the securities industry. Interestingly enough, about 1994, I get approached by some of the members of the then Alabama Securities Commission board about maybe applying for the director's spot. It took a while, but I finally decided it might not be a bad idea. Their idea was, look, I had the banking background. I had already settled a couple of cases on security side uh, that had made some local news, and they thought I would be a good fit for this organization. Back then, it was funded by about half a million dollars from the general fund. It did not have law enforcement authority. It was a very small, maybe dozen people agency, but it had the potential. And I could see that given some time and effort and some help from the legislature and some help from other regulators that we could actually build something here. What really built it was the team I was able to put together over a number of years. And we formed what I think is one of the premier securities regulators in the country on the state level. That's fantastic. But it seems like you were pretty connected in Alabama at that point. You've gotten to know a lot of the folks who helped run the state and you were willing to take on the Securities Commission job in part because you thought the broader community would support it and help. Yes, that's true. The connections at the first Alabama bank, which by at that time 
probably had 80% of the business in Montgomery. It was the largest bank here. And that gave me an entree into some of the politics, some of the big business folks. I remember meeting guys like Winton Red Blunt, who built the Alabama Shakespeare Theater. He's the one that had Blunt International that built that what entire city in Saudi Arabia. He was out of Montgomery. I was there when he brought the first check in to the bank. I remember it was like half a billion dollars. It was the down payment. So I had some access to some of these business leaders. And when I went from the bank to practice, and as that practice developed, I kept in touch with all these folks. Some became clients. And at some point in time, the state government took notice of some of the cases I was doing on the security side, not big cases by any means, but big enough that it made the local paper. And they thought I might be a good candidate for this. I actually took a huge cut in salary to take the job. I got to tell you, one of the reasons that I took it is it was time to do some public service. I could see doing some good here if we could put the right team together and the right partners. So we did an assessment of what we needed at the Securities Commission, and we went to the legislature and said, I need law enforcement authority. I need the ability to convene a grand jury for criminal cases. And this is where we made our partnership with all the district attorneys in the state. To this day, Alabama Securities is the only non-DA member of the Alabama District Attorneys Association and has membership. They recognize that we actually act as a DA in the financial sector, an area that they really don't have that much expertise at. And we brought our expertise to their offices and they, in turn, gave us the keys to the courtrooms in Alabama when we wanted to bring our cases. So that was a big factor in turning Alabama Securities from a sort of a sleepy little filing agency into a prosecutorial agency, able to do grand juries and receiverships. Then we ventured into working with and promoting senior rights and fighting senior fraud and abuse on the financial scale, which... We changed the laws there. We changed the statute of limitations. We were one of the first states to require reporting by broker dealers and investment advisors and financial professionals of suspected fraud in the senior space, which is now a national law that's required across the board. In our state, it happens to be mandatory reporting, not just voluntary reporting, but has been very successful. So when you transitioned into this role, you started off, I think, with probably one set of views about securities and securities enforcement. How have your principles and views changed over time with more and more experience in the space? Have, has there been a shift? What has it been like? The shift is very interesting because I guess, you know, I came in to change the Securities Commission. And I think over the years, working with SEC, CFTC, FINRA, back then was the old NASD, the Piaba folks on the other side. When you look at it all, it turns out that we're all trying to do the same thing, improve the economic ability of Americans to fund their future, fund for their kids' college education. Yeah, there are hiccups along the way. There always is. But I remember last night we had a little retirement party and several members of the SEC came on down and gave me a nice appreciation award and plaque and FINRA gave me a resolution from the board of directors. I don't know if that's ever been done for a securities regulator before. But let me tell you what I found out and how things have shifted from just saying, oh my God, we got to fight all this bad stuff going on in the securities field to 98% of the folks that are registered to do securities business with the general public, and I really mean Main Street investors, are trying to do the right thing. There are bad apples out there. And yes, firms screw up and they will have a bad product and we've got to fix all that. 
But I think in the long run, when you pull in state securities regulators and you work with your federal counterparts, SEC, CFTC, I'm going to add Treasury in there, and this SRO, FINRA, which I consider a co-regulator, we all want to pull in the same direction. Sometimes we're off at a little angle, but then you bring in folks like tremendous support for us, ARP, the Alabama Council on Economic Education. And this started our public relations outreach. The ASC today does about a hundred public programs a year. That's two a week. And somewhere in the state, the team from the public relations and government affairs section is doing a program to help prevent fraud, teach folks what the difference is from a stock and a bond and give them ideas on how to set up their future for retirement or young families for college education or to buy a house. So I guess starting from, well, let's go get the bad guys. Yes, we still do that. I firmly believe that if you lie, cheat, and steal, you go to jail. But everything else is something we try and work out because the economic system in this country always changes. It's always evolving. And state regulation, federal regulation, including investigations, have to change with that. So I think looking at what views that I start with, which were basic, let's put the bad guys in jail, that has continued, but has evolved and expanded to see that our purposes is not only to protect investors by going after bad guys, but helping to educate, helping to structure products that are good for the community. And if they're bad, let's get them fixed. Sometimes have to pay a fine and maybe undo the project. But in the long run, I do think that we all want the best for everybody in the country, not just the Alabama citizens, but Main Street all across the U.S. That is a broad view of how the market being regulated and market participants were all working in the same direction. Oftentimes, I think we tend to focus on the conflicts or the, the differences, but I think you're absolutely right on basic goals that all big players in this space have. So thinking about the career and the time there, you started off in this small and you now have prosecutorial authority, you know, significant funding. The Alabama Securities Commission must have encountered real challenges over the years. What were those? How did you overcome them structurally or what makes the office so successful today? I think you are absolutely right. When we first started, the first couple of years, there were some fits and starts. I think certain sectors of the other side of the financial community looked at us and went, oh, these may be a dangerous entity. Maybe we don't need to support. But I think in the long run, after we went through some of that, why are we doing this? And why do we want these powers and things of that nature? We were able to bring the financial community together to understand that by improving the lot of Main Street investors and kicking bad folks out, that this was good for all their businesses. I remember having a conversation with bankers and stockbrokers who were a little bit askance at the fact that this agency was trying to get all this authority and do receiverships and do criminal prosecutions. But I remember in the conversation saying, guys, $10 million, and this was a small amount back then, but bigger back then than it is now, but $10 million was lost to fraudsters and whatnot. And that has hurt the community. But then I said, and that means that's $10 million less you banks and financial professionals and stockbrokers have to either make a fee on and help Alabamians move forward with their future and set up. Those are relationships you have missed because that $10 million is gone. That actually reverberated with the local financial community. And they went, you really got a point there. I said, so give me the opportunity to work with you all. I will have an open door policy. If you want to come in and talk about anything, do me the courtesy though, before you start asking for controls or curbs on us, talk to me about what you see the problems are 
And we were able then to come to an agreement that I would have an open door policy. They would have an open door policy. If I put a policy out, I would let them know before it went into effect. If I was going to file for new laws, that they would then come in and tell me why I got it wrong. And if we do disagree, then we agree to disagree on that point, but we move forward on other points. And over the years, we were able to develop that. Didn't happen overnight. I'd say the first decade, eight years, took a while. The other thing we did was we outreached to our media friends to say, we are not just a normal agency. We're going to have an open door with the media. But don't ask me about cases I got under indictment because I can't tell you about. But if you want to know what we're up to or why we did something, and we've always had an open door policy with the media, they got to like us. When they realized that they can actually call us and say, Hey, we're doing a review on John Smith. He's a financial professional out of Mobile, Alabama. I said, we have things called CRD and we're welcome to that record. All you have to do is ask me for it. They had never discovered that before in Alabama. And that helped the investigative techniques of the media. Look, they're entitled to it just like anybody else is. We just made sure they knew it was available. That was a great boon for us when they realized that we were actually media friendly. So they supported us in our law enforcement efforts. And I had the legislatures, those politicians that understood what we were doing. We would explain it to them. The one thing we did differently, because we don't actually lobby, we come up with an idea of why we need this law. We analyze it as to what the positives are, what the possible negatives are, what the questions arising would be, and the answers to those questions. I've had more than one politician, senator, or local representative say, we like when the Securities Commission brings us bills because one, they outline it, they detail it, they explain it, they give us the pros and cons, they have answers to the cons, and they never lie to us. Probably that last statement is probably the most important part. And so we did build the relationship with the legislature. I'm pleased yesterday I was asked to come on over at two o'clock to the Senate chambers and on the floor, there was a joint commendation for me, which is really for the commission and its staff outlining what we had done for the last almost 30 years that have placed Alabama in the standing of being one of the best state securities regulators in the country. That was recognized by the legislature in a commendation declaration yesterday. And I count that to the staff here at the commission, the work that we've done with legislators, the work that we've done with our federal counterparts, the work we've done with our friends on the plaintiff side of Piaba, the work we've done with our educational opportunities like the AARP and the College Extension Service, which has great facilities for us to do our outreach. And we reached out to our congressional delegation in Washington, D.C. to say, here is what we do. Here are the services we can offer to you. If you invest your complaints, send them to us. And we always give them credit. If you notice my press releases that we've done over the years, we will try a case, say, in a county, and the first line reads, district attorney, whoever, and state director Joe Borg announced the conviction of. Whether or not they were involved in the case or not, they have always opened their doors to help us pick a jury or tell us how courts worked in that particular jurisdiction. We have always given them top building credit. Here at the commission, we don't run for public office. They do. We want to give them credit. And you know what? In all these cases, there's enough credit to go around for us, the SEC, the CFTC, the Treasury Department, the FBI, Secret Service, and anybody else we work with. And the one thing we found is if you're willing to share your information, share your knowledge, share your expertise, and share the credit when there's a good result, you have a lot of friends and a lot of partners. 
I think one takeaway from some of these lines of conversation is that part of the secret to your success in terms of growing this agency from what you would describe as maybe a sleepy agency when you became the director into arguably the preeminent state securities agency in the country, although perhaps your friends in New York or Massachusetts might bristle at that a bit, but arguably one of the very top, if not the top regulators in the country. That took a lot of work in terms of building relationships in both legislature with your board, with the financial community in the state, and with other regulators outside of the state. So I'm hearing a story about relationships as really allowing you to build this agency over time. And of course, you've had a lot of time to do that. You've served for 30 years as a senior official in the Alabama regulatory landscape. You're not elected, you're appointed by a board, but 30 years seems to be a really extraordinary tenure in office that has been marked with lots of different changes in the governor's mansion, in the legislature, shifts between Democrats and Republicans and all of that time. How have you managed to navigate and even survive some of the vastitudes of politics, particularly as politics is increasingly partisan and divided in this country? How have you navigated that? One of the things we asked for and this position has is we have always stayed nonpartisan. We don't play the politics. We don't take positions on politics. We will comment if the politics affects the rights or the ability of us to protect Main Street investors. So we don't get involved in politics. One of the things that has helped is that we made the position of director here, even though it's appointed by a board, which by the way, the majority of the board is outside of the politics. And I'll explain that in a minute, but the job description here are merit protected. It was recognized by our legislature that we bring cases against, it may be their own members if they're securities fraud. And there's some history here that well predates me that caused the commission to be created the way it is with protection for the staff here. Like other protected individuals in state government, usually the top are appointed. This job happens to have an appointment, but can only be fired for cause. The recognition of that was, yes, we're probably going to go against some politicians. We have had cases against Judge or two, maybe some politicians in the past that have crossed the line. We get involved in national issues, perhaps some very big businessmen with big, deep pockets. So it was recognized that if we were going to be effective, we had to have some protections so that we would not be politically bullied to some extent. Look, there are a lot of rules and administrative procedures that we go through and we adhere to them religiously. But one of the advantages we had was that the legislature recognized that, yeah, maybe this position needs to be protected. And they saw the value of that. And I guess that's one reason I'm here for 30 years. Early on, there was a move for me to maybe leave because I was being very aggressive, but we resolved all that. It turned out that we were correct. We fixed some problems that had been festering. It included the names of some highly placed family members of politicians and politicians. But when it was all cleaned out, everybody went, you know what? That was a hell of a job that the Securities Commission did. And I think we're better for it. So we had some 
advantages as we changed our legislation, expanded our commission board. There are no industry licensed folks on our board. Slightly unusual for administrative type actions, but we have two lawyers that are recommended for four-year terms, stacker terms by the Bar Association. Those names are submitted to us. We do a background check, make sure there's no issues. Then they submit it to the governor who picks one from that list. And then it goes before a Senate confirmation committee where if we have an objection, we can speak up. By the time it's gone through our review, a talk with the Bar Association, and it goes to the governor who picks one, and then it goes to Senate confirmation, we're pretty good that we have an independent person who doesn't have a political agenda. Two others are CPAs, and they go through the same process with the CPA group in Alabama. And the CPA Association recommends, they're reviewed, their names are sent to the governor, the governor picks one, and then it's confirmed by the Senate. And then the other three is one is the attorney general by virtue of his office. After all, the attorney general is the chief legal officer for the state. Now that changes with politics. I agree. And the other two is the banking and insurance commissioner, which we have a great relationship with. Now the banking commissioners are actually picked by the governor. So they are cabinet level. So we have an unusual mix of four, what I would call outside the politics. One, the attorney general, the chief legal officer, and two that are cabinet members picked by the governor but are in the same space, the insurance and the banking sectors. And of course, securities, banking, and insurance over the years have becoming more and more connected and important. So we're one of the states where if we kick somebody out of the industry and they happen to have an insurance license, it's going to get reviewed by the insurance department to see if they should keep their license and vice versa. And same with banking. So it's a little bit of an unusual situation. It's something that's evolved over time and it works very well. That's interesting. There's some recent scholarship that there might be a problem in some states where somebody is kicked out of the securities industry, but still has a insurance license or goes and gets an insurance license and might be able to engage in, in further <laughs> harms in that role selling similar products. So it's great to hear about the close working relationship between banking, insurance, and securities in the state. And that sounds like a model for, for other states. And when we talk about maybe other states, I think part of the remarkable aspect of your career is not just what you've done in Alabama, but your national leadership with the North American Securities Administrators Association. As I like to call it to my students, it's the other NASA, but it came before the NASA that they've heard of. So you've served, I think, at least twice as president of NASA. You've served as a leader on its enforcement committee for a number of years. Could you talk about what motivated you to get involved with NASA and what that's meant for your career and your ability to contribute not just to Alabama, but to the nation as well? I will tell you that on my second, I guess I was here about five days on the job when I got a call from a person identified as the executive director of NASA. Now, knowing the background that I have, my first reaction was, I wonder why NASA, the space program, is calling me after all these years. And obviously, that was my first thought. So I was invited to come to Boston, which was my first NASA conference, which was coming up a week and a half later. And I thought, let me go on up there and see what it's all about. And I was so impressed with the passion that these folks had for protecting investors. And after all these years, my example or my thought is now as wearing the state securities regulator hat, being part of a group like NASA, when I used to try cases, because I did a lot of that when I first started here, before we built up an entire litigation department, it was nice to walk into a courtroom on a white horse with a white hat. And when I was all done, 
My horse was still white and so was my hat. So that was one of the motivations for actually doing this job. But I went to that NASA meeting and recognized that there was so much talent, bigger agencies, smaller agencies, and we were a tiny agency back then. And I discovered that there was so much willingness to work together that I actually dove into NASA right at that point and started getting very active in the organization. It has been probably the primary organization that has helped me build the Alabama Securities Commission. There were people to talk to. There were people who knew more than I did. There were people that could help me with deficiencies in registration or licensing. There were people who had knowledge of case laws that I was still learning. And I encouraged all my staff to get involved. And we became, I think, one of the primary members over the years. Look, NASA works well because we all share resources, experiences, and knowledge. And there are great agencies out there. And yeah, I like to tout my agency as one of the top agencies, but credit goes where credit's due and credit shared. There are fabulous state securities regulators out there. We have had more cases probably in the Southeast with Texas, who has a tremendous breadth of experience. We work with them a lot. We've worked quite a bit with Massachusetts. In fact, some of the bigger cases we brought, Massachusetts and Alabama were a lead. So politics is not the issue. A Starworth blue state and a Starworth red state working together. Why? Because this is not political. This is working for investors and protecting the investors in America. So we have great states, New York. We've worked with New York on a number of things. Florida, such a large state we've worked with over the years. And there are regional frauds that come into effect where it's Alabama and Georgia and Florida and Texas and North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas and Texas, Mississippi, all working together because it's a regional thing. And when you can bring that kind of intellect, that kind of experience, that kind of dedication to a job, you can get a lot done. So I found NASA to be my primary outlet for making things happen in Alabama by being able to leverage everybody else's making do things in other states. And when we come together for some of the think research analysts, mutual fund timing, the Morgan Keegan case, which is more of a Southeastern type thing, recent cases that we just settled the Robin Hood case nationally. We just, we did an LPL case not too long ago and many other cases over the years where one state can't do it by itself. Now, some states have more resources than other. And I'm a firm believer that if you have like a line from one of those marble movies with great powers comes great responsibility and a state securities with great resources comes greater cooperative effort on your part. So that's kind of the way I think about it. This is fantastic to hear. This leads us to our next big question. Some of the cases and teams you've led from Alabama in, in connection with other securities regulators have had a big national impact. So I wanted to walk through a few of those. And one of the ones that most people will know about, part because of the Wolf of Wall Street movie, is the Stratton Oakmont enforcement. Can you talk a little about what led the states to get involved? How was how was that experience? And do you have a view on Mr. Belfort today, now that he's, I think, promoting cryptocurrency and other things? <laughs> Let's talk about Stratton Oakmont. It, you remember I mentioned that I had a case in securities when I was in private practice. It was somewhat related to this sort of micro cap area. And so I had some idea what it was all about. The Stratton Oakmont case for us, or the Wolf of Wall Street case, as I like to call it around here, started with an individual in a small town in Alabama who was in an accident, collected some money, 
and that got cold called by a Stratton Oakmont broker to give up that money because he was going to be set for life. And you know what happened there? In a couple of months, it was all gone. He made a complaint. We started looking at it. And the more we delved into it, we found more and more of what appeared to be pump and dump, market manipulation, creation of warrants by creating these companies that didn't have any value. And so as we continued, we put a team together. We got the best investigators from Alabama, Pennsylvania, Arkansas, Colorado. There were five states that, that worked with us on this. And we started delving into the details of what this company does and did. Now, on the front end, we got some money out early on, but we didn't stop just because we made a settlement on a particular case. It turned out that we were able to uncover how they were manipulating the stock, creating a pump and dump system, and then coming back for a second bite by having warrants issued that they kept, I guess, in their drawers to the ready to pump it again. We laid all that out in our case with that we brought the federal regulators in. I ended up, my first testimony before Congress was before the Senate Subcommittee on Investigations. And we outlined in graphic charts and details, which are in the congressional record, about how this company was manipulating the market. If you want to talk about it really simply, it's if I had a drugstore, they would come to me and say, we can turn you into a national chain. And they would issue means of shares of worthless stock. They would pump it up to among themselves with nominee accounts, get it from a penny to a dime, to a quarter, to a dollar, trying to get it over to the five dollar range. And then they would turn it loose on the boiler room to show that, hey, look, this stock is going up. Of course, there was nothing behind it, but a drugstore. And you know, they would pump it up. And then when they, everybody collected their money, because uh, you could see that percentage was going to the nominees, the hidden account owners and the owners of the firm and the money coming in from unsuspecting investors. And then when they stopped selling it, of course, it all collapsed and they would bring in another one. So that's a really oversimplified explanation of what was going on. But we were able to detail that for the Senate Subcommittee on Investigation. And we were able to show link charts of the companies that they were doing business with. We actually had a chart that showed agents' progression to starting their own companies. And we had links between Stratton Oakmont and Biltmore Securities and a dozen other companies showing how it all interconnected. And we presented that at the U.S. Senate hearing. We presented an example of one of the manipulated stocks to show where the money went, how it went, who was involved. And of course, we gave all this to the federal regulators and FINRA, who then proceeded to shut down one after another of all these manipulative companies. So that's how we ended up with the Stratton Oakmont Task Force. And so they made a movie out of it, but we had nothing to do with the movie. I thought the movie, while interesting, unfortunately, I think promoted too much the drug culture and how they had too much fun on everybody else's money. But that's just my feeling on it. But that's where it came from. And eventually Martin Scorsese made a movie out of it. So it's going to be interesting to watch the movie and have in your mind, the leading characters you think about are probably the investors who got ruined. So other major cases that you've been involved in, let's talk about a case called Greater Ministries. What was that and how did that go down? Greater Ministries International Church is one of the most interesting cases we've had. And how it developed was that Greater Ministries was operating out of Tampa, Florida as a church. And they had this program where you would invest your money and God would double your money in 17 months. And the idea was that they had operations in Africa, they had interest in cargo ships and foreign currency, and that all this money was going for the greater glory of God. In fact, I remember them pitching it as God's 
social security plan for Christians is how deep it got into. And for years, they would ponzing this money. Now, they usually stayed in Florida, and then they developed up into the Southeast and into the Northeast. At one point, they had 26,000 victims in this case, or members of the church, many of whom were victims. They moved into Alabama years after they started, and it was brought to our attention by, of all people, a Birmingham minister who had actually invested in it and got curious when, instead of getting checks, they started dropping cash off as the payoff amounts. And of course, they wanted him to promote this in his church as well. He came to us and said, this is something wrong. So we probably spent a year investigating this without going to them to try and figure out what was this operation. Now, the interesting part of this is that when we finally amassed the information and we went down to federal court in Florida to get a court order because we wanted a TRL, preliminary injunction, temporary restraining order. We wanted their records, but we didn't want them to know we were coming. So we filed it on our own before a judge and laid out why we needed this order. And he gave us an order that we could go into the building and take records and computer records and whatever else we needed to find out what the extent of the problem was. There was a problem. The church itself used to be an old bank type building, which means it's got vaults and steel doors and they had armed guards. Yes, they had armed guards at the church. So the marshal's office said, we probably need some help on this. We contacted Tampa mayor's office, explained the situation. We had this federal quarter and that we needed some help. And my question was very simple. Yeah, I need some help. His question was, what do you want? My answer was, what do you got? And of course, he told us about the SWAT team and that they had this armored personnel carrier, basically a tank. And we requested to borrow it all. So on Friday evening, when we knew that church was not in session, they were a Saturday, Sunday group. This arsenal runs down Bird Street, which is the main street of, of Tampa, and runs up to the church. And the U.S. Marshals, under their authority, with help from the city of Tampa, runs up to the bully with an armored personnel carrier and a SWAT team. And, of course, the armed guards decided maybe this was a little too much for them to handle. So they quietly put down their armed guard rifles and we went in and got what we needed. Turned out to be a seven-week trial after that, spearheaded by the DOJ with our help, of course. And we found boxes of materials and letters to investors. Even found a letter where an investor was saying, hey, I put my money in Greater Ministries. It was an elderly lady. And she now needed money back because of medical bills and her family. And Obviously, they took that and took it out of the active file, put it in the junk file with a little smiley face on it, and basically threw it away. We did find a stack of weapons in the building. We found phony bond certificates that were about to be issued in the billion-dollar range. They were selling gold coins at inflated value and all sorts of things. The American Greed series did a whole show on that one. It was one of their first earlier episodes of Greater Ministry. So that's an interesting, they actually have footage of the tank coming down Bird Street and things like that. The narrator there does a wonderful job from the DOJ to talk about things that were found in the building and whatnot. They eventually filed bankruptcy. We fought the bankruptcy case as well, got as much as we could for investors. But a lot of that money was lost in overseas. Basically, they took in about $650 million. A lot of it was palsied back out. But there were several hundred million dollars that were missing. But it's an interesting case because how often do you see securities regulators go into an operation with a tank and a SWAT team and the U.S. Marshals? So yeah, it was interesting. So this one of the more memorable, even though there was a lot of damage. 
I will tell you, there's a side story to this. We actually convened a meeting in Tampa by renting out part of the Civic Center to have victims come on in. There were members of the church there, some who eventually got indicted, who told folks if they went and talked to us, they would be excommunicated from the church and their soul damned to hell. Quite honestly, a lot of folks turned around and left. I was never more impressed with the power of religion to steal money. To be honest, I've never seen churches and whatnot, phony ministers using religion as the best way to steal money from Christians. It really is. But that is the power that type of affinity fraud has on people, that people would turn away because they were potentially afraid that their soul would actually be damned to hell if they talked to regulators. Fascinating. So our next case is another major fraud, and it's one that a lot of people didn't hear about because of the Madoff Ponzi scheme. As a young lawyer, I cut my teeth doing Madoff-related work. And the other case that you made off 50 billion paper losses, maybe 17, 18 billion in actual losses. Could had it been for Madoff sucking up all the headlines, the one we would have been talking about is the Allen Stanford Ponzi scheme, where he was issuing high interest rate CDs and other things, I think out of a bank that was alleged to be in Antigua. What was your involvement there? I understand that Stanford did not have a whole lot of success in Alabama. Here's what happened there. We had a case previously involving a bank at other Marianas, again, another offshore bank, where they were selling CDs. And everybody thinks CDs are exempt from registration. They are because there are banking folks who do that. Now, I think we had some, over the years, we've had to explain to courts the difference between an exemption from the securities law and an exclusion from the securities law. So if you think about securities law in general. I have money, you want it, and you're going to use your entrepreneurial skills to invest it, and I'm going to get a return or a dividend or interest, whatever it might be. Sell me notes, I get interest. Sell me stock, I get a dividend. You start a business, I make a profit. If you think about a bank CD, just in general, I lend money to a bank. They do something worth it, which mainly lend it out to consumers or make loans and whatnot, and I get interest. That's a security. The only reason we don't regulate it, even though it is a security, is because the banking regulators have got that covered. The FDIC goes in and examines the banks. Banking authorities go and examine banks. Feds go and examine banks. Probably the most highly regulated area finance in the country is banking. That doesn't mean it's not a security. So just because it's exempt from registration, this bike in the Marianas was taking the position they don't need to register with us, that they're exempt. We don't have any authority over them. Chris, they were saying the securities laws did not apply in general. And our interpretation of law was, look, if you are a bank regulated by an American bank authority, then yes, you don't have to register. But we still have anti-fraud authority because it's still a security. You're just exempt from registration. That case settled out position that if you are a bank that's selling CDs and you're regulated by a American banking regulator, you don't have to register. The problem with the Stanford CDs that we took the position early on was, yeah, you can do brokerage and you can do everything else, but those CDs have to be registered because the Antigua Bank is not under American bank regulation. And therefore, you don't have the exception for non-registration. And so we took that position early on, not knowing that there was a fraud going on. It was just our standard procedure. And quite honestly, we didn't have any Stanford complaints of CDs sold in Alabama because they didn't do it. We did get some complaints, but we found that those CDs were sold 
to those individuals in other states. I would say that one, we were more lucky than good. We did not see that fraud up front, but we did have the law in place that our position was just because it's a bank CD doesn't mean it's exempt from registration. It had to be exempt from registration as long as there was an American banking regulator, a state banking regulator, federal bank regulator, an actual bank, FDIC insured that was looking at that entity, in which case we wouldn't look. So that was a little different. We didn't have a whole lot to do with the prosecution of that case. I think we did give information that may have been helpful to the prosecutors and of the state, but we really didn't have a problem with the Stanford because that was our position. Now we regulated them on other activities and we still had some issues there, but not to the extent of what the problem was with. So that's our situation on the Stanford Ponzi scheme. Joe, we're winding down episode, this first part of our interview with you, and I want to close with a discussion of one area of case experience you've had, because I think it'll lead into the second episode where we'll talk more about some of your perspectives on securities regulation and enforcement more broadly. But maybe the closing case experience, for example, I'd like to leave you and the listeners with on this episode is the ICO sweep that NASA and the state regulators coordinated and some of the leadership that the states have shown in the crypto enforcement space. Obviously, this has become an area of pretty intense interest for SEC and CFTC enforcement with some of the tumult in the crypto and digital asset space in the last year or so. But could you talk about what you and the states have been doing with with ICOs or with crypto enforcement? We saw Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies starting to come up. And it was interesting. Of course, they were very little when it started in 2008 and went all the way up to about 2012. We took notice of it about that time, basically when it got to about a dollar value. But we were looking at this and we discovered that a lot of folks were selling digital currency. I'm not going to just pick on Bitcoin. There's thousands of them now, Bitcoin being the first and Ethereum being the second that was most popular. Anytime that something hits the headlines. I don't care whether it's a disaster or turmoil in the foreign currency markets. The best frauds are ripped right out of the headline because everybody knows a little bit about it and somebody's making money. And so therefore, that's a good pitch. ICOs, initial coin offerings, legitimate? Yes, there's a place for these things. But the fraudsters saw an opportunity that was unparalleled because it was all on the internet. You don't have to do cold calls. You don't even have to send prospectuses out. You don't have to register with everybody. And yet everybody was aware that something was going on with ICOs and digital currency and raising money and everybody was going to make a fortune. So back earlier, years earlier, we had done what we would call internet sweeps. My staff would take a day and go internet surfing. And they would look for things like make money quickly, make money overnight, get rich quick. And we would look at these and see who they are and start shutting them down before they got started or before they got into my state. Again, remember that if you offer securities over the internet and you allow it to get into my state and you are able to accept people's money, then that's offer of a security in my state. And therefore it has to be licensed or registered or exempt. When we saw the wave of what was happening with these ICOs, NASA created a task force. We did an ICO sweep. The first thing we did, and let me credit our Canadian members for this. They took the lead as part of the NASA team and they created some of the algorithms that we needed that was exported to Alabama and Texas and all the other states that took a lead in this. And we searched the internet 
for the creation of language that indicated what was going on with ICOs, digital currency, make money quickly. There were 200,000 websites out there that had something along this line. 200,000, 80% were created in a three-month period when Bitcoin started to go crazy on price. Most of them were fraudulent. And so we did this ICO sweep. We did this digital currency suite and started highlighting to the public all these ICOs that we see had no basis. Sometimes you got to go, it sounds too good to be true. When somebody's promising you double your money overnight or 300% return every month, you have to say to yourself, is this even possible? But look at what was going on in the markets. We were minting billionaires with new companies overnight. And let's face it, everybody wants to be part of that. We don't want to miss out. And I think that was the pitch that was used. So we were able to put 40 some odd states, the territories and problems of Canada, together, Puerto Rico and DC and everybody to put people on teams that they could centrally then put all the data in and get information out. A lot of things that we did was different. Now, normally you would look at a fraud, you would investigate it and you would prosecute. Of course, the problem with that is the harm is already done. Now we're punishing and trying to recover. What we decided to do with the ICO was catch them as they started and put cease and desist orders out, prohibition orders out, stop orders out, and paste it on the internet. So if you were looking at the fly-by-night crypto company, double your money overnight or 30% return in two weeks, when we saw that and we would issue our appropriate orders, we'd paste that on the internet. So if you now... Main Street investor, we're looking at fly-by-night digital currency company. Right next to it would be an order of the state of Alabama, state of Texas, state of New York, state of North Dakota, anybody that would say, this is a fraud, order them to cease and desist. Basically, we took what was a poisoned well that people were enticed to dip their bucket in to pull water at, returns, and we posted a sign on there. It said present water. And this was able to help stop a lot of these frauds that people would go, wait, maybe I ought to think twice about this. And that's what we were trying to do. Put that sign that said, this well has poisoned water. Don't drink from it. And that was our approach. And we ended up with lots, dozens and dozens of cases. And we found that the internet providers, the Facebooks, the GoDaddies, the Microsoft, the Googles, when we presented them with an order, they started to take these websites down. That doesn't mean they can't start a new one somewhere. And it's a little bit like whack-a-mole, but we were doing the best we can to get the information out to the public quickly before the damage occurs. So we were the early warning system that don't do business with these entities. Make sure they're licensed and registered. Make sure you do your homework and don't lose your money. So that's what we did on the ICO sweep, which I think then morphed into the COVID-19 sweep. Do you know that these folks that were doing the phony cryptocurrency sweep then started to use the COVID-19 to combine it? There were websites like our website is contributing to vaccine research. This was before the vaccines came out. And therefore, an investment with us is also an investment in getting rid of the COVID-19. And so they combined that. So we had to expand that into the COVID-19 suite to show that there were fraudulent vaccine offers out there. There were fraudulent claims for cures that you could invest in. And so we morphed it into the COVID-19 suite as well. I have to tell you one of the best, when I say best, I put it in quotes, most interesting ICO fraud I saw. Think about this. Here's an ad that says, Harvard scientists have developed the antivirus to COVID-19. Now, this is, again, before the vaccines came out. 
That is big news. That is big news. And that the Harvard scientists are going to make this free and available to everyone. So altruistic. It's great. Now, how do you become a part of this? It's very simple. This is an antivirus. You can download the antivirus from our website onto your computer. And as long as you leave your computer laptop running, you will not get COVID-19. Now, just think about that for a second. Because people saw COVID-19, they saw antivirus, everybody's scared, and it was free. You click on it. Of course, what it did was it put bots on your computer. And the next thing, your banking information, your passwords and everything else is being shifted to these criminals so they could steal your identity, do mortgage loans in your name, and basically just drain your bank accounts. That was the one of the more unusual ones. Most of them were invest with us. We're going to have a new vaccine out in a month and you'll make a fortune, that kind of stuff. But that one caught my attention. <laughs> that's when we immediately went to the internet providers to have them take it down. So that's what we do on these sweeps. We started it way back when, and it's been a successful method that we use to stop these what I call mass frauds. All right. On that note, Joe, thank you so much. I think this is going to conclude the first part of our interview, but I'd like everybody listening to be sure to download the next episode. The first episode in this extended interview with Joe Borg of the Alabama Securities Commission has focused on some of Joe's experiences over the years as one of the nation's preeminent state securities regulators. And in our next phase of this conversation, Ben Edwards of University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I will talk with Joe about some of his perspectives on securities regulation and perhaps the future of securities regulation and investor protection more broadly. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.